praise you, Jesus. Praise you, Lord. Father, I just thank you, God, for the anointing of the body of Christ. Lord, it's not an anointing of a man or an individual, God. It's the anointing of the body when they come together. Lord, this is the atmosphere in which you heal. This is the atmosphere in which you bring salvation. This is the atmosphere in which you bring glory to your holy name. Father, thank you that you, you invite us into the, this moment to be a part of the body of Christ, to love the expression of everybody's voice and heart and spirit together as one. <clears throat> <clears throat> and Jesus, this morning, we thank you and praise you. The Lord, there's these truths that we learn, Father, of what it means to be one and to be the body that we only learn when we come together and express our worship to you as one mind, as one heart. Father, we're only as healthy as, as we are together. And I thank you, Jesus. You are our God. You are the everlasting Savior. Lord, in light of the beauty and the revelation the Holy Spirit gives us, we know you are going to fulfill your word. You are going to do the things you said you were going to do. There is no mistake about that. You are not a man that you, are sh that you should lie, nor the son of man that you should repent. You have spoken, and it will come to pass. Right now, Father, we thank you. We've been praying. We've been praying and believing you for things that we know that only you can do, and we find in the Scripture are your will. So we're confident that you will completely and entirely and fully give us the provision of those promises and those miracles. And we thank you, Jesus, because we worship the one and true God. Thank you for your word today. Lord, we thank you that any time that we choose to open this book, any time we choose to sit down and say, Lord, speak to me, any time... And every time you're there present. Lord, not on a Sunday morning only, but as Lord, this church <clears throat> and my brothers and my sisters have spent time with you this week. They decided that they were going to spend time with you because they wanted you to be glorified in that day. And when they got together, they wanted you to be glorified in this moment. And so, Lord, I'm literally being hung by the, the faithfulness of my brothers and sisters today. Lord, not because they prayed for me necessarily, but because they sought you this week. And they asked you, Lord, to reveal your will to them. And at all costs, they were willing to obey you and serve you because they absolutely love you. And so, Lord, I thank you that what we're experiencing here right now what we've already been tasting is the anointing that comes 
when our hearts are in agreement with you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. It's always good when the preacher's inspired, right? <laughs> it's always good when he's coming out of worship feeling refreshed himself. So I know God is doing things, and I know he wants to do amazing things. The emphasis every Sunday, whether I say it or not, whether I tell you that or not, the emphasis is the body of Christ. The emphasis is we are one. And what you do through the week is recharging my soul. You may not be praying for me, but as you serve the Lord and as you give yourself faithfully to Him, you're supplying for me and you're supplying for one another. And, you know, sometimes we don't get to make those phone calls and we get to give those times together, but we're supplying for one another in some of the most incredible ways. But it's in those moments that God anoints you and He calls you to a deeper place. You know what it means to have that moment, when we call it an intimate moment with God, where you, you feel like, Lord, I can take the shoes from off of my feet. This place is holy ground. This is my moment with God. And in that moment, you don't care what the Lord shares with you. You don't care what He shows you. Whatever He shows you is good. <clears throat> and it's in those times I know that the Lord's defined for me love for somebody. He's defined for me what it means to pray with the depth of my heart. And sometimes, you know, we feel the tragedy sometimes in the church because we're like, where are people praying from the depth of their heart? <clears throat> and instead, we should be looking to God and saying, Lord, you know that as a natural human being, you know the flesh of me. I can't pray from the depth of my heart. But when the Holy Spirit meets me, there's a difference. There's a complete difference. It's the same thing with preaching or anything else we do. And we want to serve God under that anointing because we know that in those moments He reveals to us the secrets of heaven. He shows us things about somebody. And we pray for them like we've never prayed before. We've cried for them. We've wept for them. And we felt the, the, the promises of God. And it's like they were so tangible and so real that it was impossible that anything other than what God had revealed to you should come to pass. And you're so confident, like, like Abraham, you can say, I am fully persuaded that what God has promised, He is able to perform. He is able to perform it. And you step away from that prayer moment with God. You step away from that worship time with the Lord in your secret time, and you've been in heaven. I mean, we can call it you've been in church. You can call it whatever. It wasn't a congregation. It was just the angels, the Holy Spirit, and you and God. And that's what... I feel like I'm thinking about this morning, I feel like this is the Lord's message to us this morning, is that as, the, as, as a body of Christ, that we're not starved individually in our week when we seek God. And when you come together, you bring that presence that you, you had with God. You bring that worship time with Him. You bring the fragrance of that into our time. And I feel like this worship this morning and the testimony time has just been a part of what you guys have been doing throughout the week. And I'm so refreshed. I could walk away from this time right now, have said nothing more than I am, and feel like I'm ready to go face the battle of the week and what God has for me. Praise God for that. Amen. And I, I trust that you guys do as well. So turn to your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5. 
I don't know if you're praying for me to be long-winded this morning or just get to the point, but I do know that you're praying whatever it is that the Lord continues to move in this as well. Praise God. In Ephesians chapter 5. Uh, let's start in verse 1. Praise you, Lord. Um, be therefore followers of God as dear, dear children and walk in love as Christ has loved us and has given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savor. just want to capitalize, focus on these two verses. The first verse is, be therefore followers of God. Another translation to that is imitators. Um, Jesus said something so powerful to his disciples. He said, what you've done, what I've done, you will do. And greater signs and greater things will you do than what I've done. It's, when, you, when you have a call like that, you're like, okay, so that redefines what imitation and imitate what he's done. But that also redefines how we pray. So, Lord, I want you to live in me your life just the same way so that I can imitate you on earth. And so I know I need the Holy Spirit here. He also says in verse 2, And walk in love as Christ has given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savor. You notice that he highlights this love in the sacrifice. And I think probably all of us could probably agree here this morning that the reality is, is that when we felt like we've loved deeply, we've sacrificed deeply as well. There's been deep sacrifices with that. But no sacrifice ever matches the sacrifice that Jesus made for us. No sacrifice. But it's also the propellant for us because we're thinking, Lord, as much as I loved that moment where I sacrificed and I saw your glory, I'm ready to step into the next one. And just move me closer and closer to the ultimate sacrifice that you gave and the ultimate love that's been poured out to us. And though I'll never match it, I'll always look at that as the goal for which I always look to. Because, you know, when you give something beneath or something easily to reach, it's almost as if we feel like we've finally accomplished something. We've come to that climax point and we're happy with where we're at. But this is where God's saying, when it comes to the love of God, even as Christians... We're defining that love. You know, sometimes we give in little ways, and God knows that, and that's, that is not without rapport, but it's the sacrificial love that speaks for the cross. And sometimes this, the greatest sacrifices we make, it feels like, man, I don't know that this is going to do any good. I don't feel like it's, it's making the goal. I feel like this is a real struggle, the deepest struggle in me, and you feel like quitting. And when it's a sacrifice so deep, you feel like giving up. You feel like you can't do it anymore. Remember, this is where the love of God is being proven in your life. We have to remember something else because as he goes further in this, um, he begins to start talking about the Christian life and the duty of the Christian life and what to avoid and what to do. And he gives some particulars. And this isn't the only chapter he does it in, but... Um, you know, really, there isn't anything as far as what we do practically in life that means a whole lot until we've secured the one thing that Jesus said was most important. Clean first the inside of the cup, and then the outside shall be clean. There's always this renewal in our individual times with God 
this continual renew, keeping me clean so that the outwork can continue to be right too. And so what he's talking about here is only a byproduct of what's happening to you inwardly, spiritually. And so, um, but we want to remember some of the things that I, that love is not. And love is not a tolerance for sin. And it's important that we don't underestimate how important. And, and one of the reasons why that is because it's not consistent with what is the uh, what is the motivation of sin? You can't put love and sin in the same category because there's not the same motivation that underlines them. Love is unselfishness. Love is giving up of self. The love is is uh, self denial, and then sin is all based on selfishness. And so you can't put them the motivation of it together. You can't lock them together. So. We can't have a sense of tolerance in a sense, but there's maybe other ways to describe it. But the reality is, is that when we look at our own life, you have the gospel, the gospel that goes and Jesus Christ centers himself in between. This is the this is the judgment side of the gospel. This is the dark side of humanity. This is the sinful side that we look at. And then you have the other side of the gospel, the restorative, the love the reconciliation, the regeneration. You have the miracles. You have everything that we want on this side. This is the side that we don't want to talk about. This is the side we struggle with. But the reality is, to pass to this side, we have to look at the other side as well. But it also, part of it is, is this. The more you've experienced this side of the gospel, the more you're going to hate this side. You're going to hate, first of all, every ounce of darkness as it was in you. Not like as it was like pounding your chest for hating yourself, but hating the whole spirit of wickedness, hating the whole motivation and selfishness that's involved in it. I'm not a part of that anymore. My mind has been renewed. My spirit has been uh, transformed. I'm not that kind of mindset or person ever. And so the integrity and the light and the love of God is completely in, in opposition to this kind of spirit. And that's the Christian life. And so there's a, an intolerance for the spirit that's of sin. And that's why the practice of sin doesn't come into play. Notice in 1 John, he talks about, and he said, Isaac, can you turn me down just a little bit? Um, he talks about, he said, you cannot sin because you're born of God and the seed of God remains in you. Now, obviously, that requires a little bit of definition of, you mean like, like it's impossible for a Christian to sin from then on? No. But what they're saying is, is that the seed of God, the, the life of Jesus has gotten into you in such a way that the desirableness, the attraction of sin, the interest that drew you into it is not there anymore. It's past. It's died. It's went to the grave of Jesus. And now you've been resurrected a new man. And this is your life. This is your salvation on this side of the cross. But this is what you pass from. And the highlight of it is this. I've been hewn from a pit. What you're doing is you're looking at what 
my life used to be. And it all the more glamorizes what Jesus has made it be. So there isn't a tolerance for sin unless there's a deception or we haven't experienced and passed from death to life. Does it mean that there isn't a struggle, there isn't a temptation here and there? No. But I think the difference is this, is that you haven't given grounds for temptation. In other words, the devil has to work at getting this in your life. He doesn't have to work when you were lost. He didn't have to do much to get you bound up then. But now he has to work tirelessly to get you to fall to pieces now. And he knows this, that even if he gets you to that breaking point, oh, I can't hold on to you because somehow you're going to find your way back to God. You're going to find your way back to that place where your salvation began and that source. And when you get bruised up and you get battered by something that he's done or said to you, you're going back. And that's amazing. And so it's always a defeat. It doesn't matter how much he makes in progress. And I've said this before. What the, what the, what's taking years for the devil to do in destroying somebody's life in one moment through the revelation of the truth of the gospel, Jesus Christ will destroy in a second. All that work gone to the wayside. Praise God. And then um, it's uh, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 11. This is what he tells us our duty is. He says, And have no fellowship with the unfruitful, wick, uh, unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them. There's a few more scriptures here in the Bible that talk about this. In Leviticus 19:17, You shall not hate your brother in your heart. Uh, you, shall not, you shall in any wise rebuke your neighbor and shall not suffer sin upon him. <clears throat> There's actually considered a, quite a few scriptures, but these scriptures are very clear. It's very clear that it's actually, in Leviticus it's saying, it's, it's likened to hating somebody by letting them have freedom in that sin. And I think for us, those of us who know what it means to be born again, you're like, I don't have the tendency and the interest of rebellion to make it so that I don't that I hate the idea that you would rebuke me or correct me or give me instruction, but that there isn't that tendency toward rebellion so that actually I'm favorable to you. I'm favorable to the fact that you look at me and you want to try and make sure that my straight my path is continued to be straight and narrow. So there's inspiration behind the call of reproof. Now I know some people they just have the spirit of reproof about them. They're critical, they're hardened, they, they're in their own form of rebellion, and, and in some sense, the idea is there's a satisfaction to reprove somebody else or to find a fault in, you, in another person because somehow you're able to avoid the conviction that you have over your own life. And it doesn't settle anything. And you hear something like that and you're like, man, they, they might be all about the truth. They might be all about getting right down to the, the, where the rubber meets the road with you. But the problem is, is they don't have the, the spirit of humility within their life. They don't have humility to guard the rebuke. And when you look at the life of Jesus, whenever he gave a rebuke, it was sound. It was pure. When we hear of the story of Stephen, it said that they could not, they stoned him and they couldn't resist him for the spirit 
and the wisdom for which he spoke. So there's a spirit behind which people have. And if there's, an, there's a love for the light, and there's a love for God, and there's this intolerance for the spirit of sin, it's not just pure rebuke. It's the desire for reconciliation. It's the spirit of reconciliation. It's the heart of reconciliation behind me coming to you and doing what I could to correct your course and keep you in the light and pull you back to the direction God wants. And so this will be a constant reminder in the scripture is as hard as it is sometimes to be able to get together, we talked about that vulnerableness. And it's hard to be vulnerable with somebody who you can tell they don't have the humility of God behind the rebuke. And so we need today, we need in the church. We need among brothers and sisters that are faithful. We need you to speak openly about things that are wrong. This country needs that right now. Now right now we got the internet exploding of people who want to rant about what they believe is right. And this is not the heart of the gospel is to rant about the thing that bugs you. Your political rant is not the thing that highlights the heart of the gospel. Now that doesn't mean that we shouldn't be supporting or standing in favor of something. But the difference is this, that sometimes we get so focused on one point that we lose the focus of the whole. What is it that needs to be established through this? Do I need to make sure that my argument is firm and I've stopped every mouth and every tongue from accusing me and that I've debated the point until nobody has an argument against me? And sometimes that's all we see. I mean, if you look at things now, it feels like that. It feels like the whole object, the, less, the object lesson is let's do what we can to win the argument. Sometimes at the destroying of somebody else's integrity just to win the argument. But the heart of it should be reconciliation. I want to see the restorative work of the Lord in each of our lives. And so I believe when we use the word rebuke, we have to follow it up with radical humility. Scripture tells us, that we must restore such an one in the spirit of meekness, lest we're overtaken. There has to be a weakness. There has to be a brokenness. There probably was. And I would imagine before you ever stepped foot to move in that direction, there were tears that preceded it. There was a brokenness before God. There was this feeling like, Lord, I don't want to do this unless I know that you're calling me forward. And there's that nudging of the Holy Spirit moving forward. And why is this important? Because, Jesus, because the Scripture says in 1 John, if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. So the question is, what is breaking the fellowship? It's not just the fact that we're not sometimes present together. What breaks the fellowship is when we are together, there is sin or there's something that needs to be reproved by the light and be brought back into fellowship with God before we can have fellowship with each other. So like in uh, James it says, Submit to God, 
Resist the devil and he will flee. So we want spiritual breakthroughs. And sometimes spiritual breakthroughs aren't, you know, taking the time to turn on the music and worship. Sometimes the spiritual breakthrough isn't that you're taking another moment to pray. Sometimes the spiritual breakthrough is the thing that God has been nudging in your life and you're finally ready to give it up. I've seen this, and I know you guys have too, where somebody who was not willing to surrender the Lord in an area of obedience, they were struggling, they prayed, and it just felt like they just couldn't break through with the Lord. And finally they let loose. And the next morning they didn't even get out of bed yet, and the Spirit of God was moving on their heart. They felt that they were already connected with God. It was automatically, it was instantaneous. There was spiritual life and revival and they didn't even have to work at it because God was meeting them there in that moment. And, and what you realize is like, wow, the thing that breaks down prayer, the thing that breaks down our worship is that if there's any place in our life where God's calling us to an area of obedience and we're not doing it or we're, un, or we're doing something other than what He wants, it, that has to change first. Submit to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee. And so, like this this morning, talking about as brothers and sisters, this is the other side of what we do individually, by ourselves, throughout the week, is God's doing a, an inner cleansing and con continuous. Like, unless if there's somebody else, I mean, if there's anybody in the in the audience would like to raise their hands, that I've already got there, I'm perfectly right, I'm, you know, I'm more than willing to accept that if that's possible. But I think all of us would say, I'd raise my hand as I got more to grow. I've got more to go. Well, then pinpoint what's the next one? What's that place God's trying to take you to? So when we talk about this, there's such a sensitive subject about rebuking somebody. And you know what? I, I don't know that I'm in the place to rebuke. And all of those things are probably all true. But remember, it's still in Scripture. And there's an important role into it. And those that love us and rebuke us in humility really only want God's best for our life and for His best in our churches, brothers and sisters. Um, so I made this statement, walking love is having the highest priority for the balance of our brothers and sisters' outer and inner purity. What we see outwardly and what's happening to you inwardly. And we have the highest priority for that. You know, it's It's ministry. It's what it is. But the reality is, I like what one uh, man said. He said that we're all basically beggars just asking one another, where do we find bread? <laughs> Nobody's in the higher ground here. You know, The reality is we're all hungry. We're all thirsty. We all want God. We all want even uh, a move of the Lord that just confounds us all. So I'm hungering and, and feeding off of you, you as, as well as me. In verse 3, let's look at verse 3. Um, but fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not be once named among you as become saints. These are the sins that shame the Christian profession and are diabolically a contrast to the integrity of the Christian life. You can't, somebody can't walk into your life and see one of these particular sins and begin to feel like they, they sense that God is getting glorified through it. 
And so basically he's saying, don't let it once be named among you. And I'm interested in the word covetousness. That has become an, an interesting thought. And I wonder, have we defined for ourselves covetousness? Because he's naming it among some, some horrendous sin. And how did covetousness get in there? And I, I had wanted to take some time to think about what is, uh, what is it that makes covetousness an issue? And I want to go down to verse 5. For this you know that no whoremonger, I'm sure you guys have a different version there, nor unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. The covetous man is an idolater. I mean, like he's guilty of two sins. The definition for covetousness, basic form, is an ardent desire or a very strong desire to have something that's unlawful for you to have. God doesn't intend for you to have. So basically, covetousness is me desiring something that God hasn't provided in either providence or promise, and yet I still want it. I so ardently want it that I give my heart's affection to the desire to have. Another word that follows with that is greed. Some actually translations, maybe some of you have it, it actually says greed in the translation. And I was like, well, greed isn't just the desire to have something that you don't have at the moment, you don't possess. But greed is wanting more of something that you do possess. So you're desiring to have more than what God has provided, more than what he's promised, more than what's in his providence. You're not content with what God has given. And essentially, if you think about it, idolatry, we say, is the worship of something or the giving of your heart to something more than you do God. So basically, when God has taken from us or God has given to us, we worship in him and knowing that he's been faithful not to give us too much. So he's faithful in what he withholds and he's faithful in how much he gives. Lord, if you had given more than this, I'd have probably ruined myself with it. It would have drugged me into a place of darkness or temptation that your love kept me from. And that I wasn't mature enough in my walk with you to taste that yet. And that by withholding from me, this, as good as it might seem, you're still a good God. And so maybe we're defining covetousness and why it's such an urgent problem is because when we let our hearts desire something other than what God has given and what God has in mind for us, we've essentially entered into idolatry. And covetousness, by scriptural definition, is a form of idolatry. And, and I honestly was like, okay, so I don't know. You know, really, I studied this myself thinking, I don't know what to do with that. I don't know what to do with it. And this was the thought that came to my mind. What is it that God is essentially telling me? It's not just avoid covetousness, but practice, practice contentment. Why do we get to the place that we got to have something more or something that somebody else has? Because we're not content with what we have. So uh, Alistair Begg, 
just want to give a quote from him. This would, uh, if we are to say to covetousness, we must learn, if we say no to covetousness, we, are must, we must learn to say yes to contentment. This involves learning to be content with what we have. Much of our dis- discontentment may be traced to expectations that are essentially selfish and more often than uh, not completely unrealistic. Nicholas Champfort, I don't know, I really have never, I don't know much about him, but I liked what he said. Covetousness is a sort of mental gluttony, not confined to money, but craving honor and feeding on selfishness. When we put it in that perspective, we begin to like think, this is a gross sin. I don't want, I don't want as a Christian to become kind of cozy or warm to the idea of covetousness. But if I'm going to be able to do that, then contentment with godliness is great gain. So the practice of being content. And friends, there's a whole lot of place in our life. I mean, I know in my own life, I'm like, man, if I had more money, I would do this. And that's the first mark of discontentment and acknowledgement in my own mind. And I wonder where that goes if we go too far with that. And so I think this is the thing is I'm like, I'm, I'm talking to mature brothers and sisters. I think what we're talking about is, is that we're not talking about avoiding the major sins of it. We're talking about how to have holier practices of having contentment and loving God with what he's provided and cherish his providence and the things that he's given to us and love him extremely with where we're at in life. Lord, you don't have to give me any more and you don't have to and you can take everything away. I love the words of Job. The Lord has given and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. The spirit of worship, the heart of love is still invested from the worshiper to his God in those scriptures. And we're highlighting those in our own lives. And we must, we must guard against that. And then he talks about in verse 4. Neither filthiness nor foolish talking nor coarse jesting which are not convenient, but rather giving of thanks. So here he's talking about the sins of our tongue, the things to watch for our tongue. And he tells us what to do instead. He says, giving thanks. You know, instead of allowing your tongue to go somewhere, and here's a scripture for us, the tongue is a fire, a world of inequity. So is the tongue among our members that it defiles the whole body and sets on fire the course of nature and is set on fire of hell. And every kind of beasts and birds and serpents and things of the sea is tamed and has been tamed of mankind. But the tongue can no man tame. It's an unruly evil, full of deadly poison. There is no other member of our body that has more potential for for evil. And more care should be given here than anywhere else. I mean, we use our tongues. I mean, I was actually looking it up because I was interested. I was like, so in a general basis, like how many words are we using per day? And like they say roughly like 20,000 per some. You know, obviously, you can't go by that very much because they're like, oh, so this is the difference between men and women. I saw a laughter over there. I know where this is going. I know where this is going. So the difference between a man and a woman is how many words that they use. And then they go through. They're like, actually, there's probably not proven either way. So and uh, there's times where in, in, the, in the situation scenarios, men will talk a lot, you know. But the reality is if we just put just that rough figure out there and said 20,000 words in a day. That means there's a possibility that I could have sinned 20 
thousand times, opportunities, 20,000 opportunities for me to have sinned or done something that dishonored my Lord. That's a good reason. That's a great reason to watch over our tongues, to pray when we wake up in the morning. Lord, I haven't said anything yet except your name. Help me. Put a bridle over my mouth and keep me. I've often thought, after I've said something, how come I, I wish I could take that back? I wish I could redefine. You'll find me sometimes in my marriage, and I'll do it with my kids too. I'll, I'll say something, and I'll look. Sometimes it's the look that I get in the moment, but other times I just have to, I do this. I'll say, oh, let me back away. Me, me, me. I do that in the conversation. Like, I'm backing away from what I just said. Let me rephrase, start all over again. That's not where I was going. Sorry. And that's the next best thing you can do. But the reality is, is once we've said it, is we've released it into the atmosphere. So the best is to pray, God, your grace was there for something, right? And oftentimes we think of it as the grace side of forgiveness. That the Lord wanted to forgive for what I, I did. But the grace side is there to prevent as well. The preventative side of grace is such a remarkable part of the grace of God, and it's always there. So what we could say is in the event that I did something, the grace of God is there to bring me back to where I need to be, but the grace of God is also there so that the event never happens. I love that Jesus can keep us in that grace. The Lord is literally able to keep us in the grace to prevent us from falling and sin. So I'm sure we have a lot. It's like, man, when it comes to words, there's things I've said I didn't even think about. And we still have to think about it. We can't call all of them to mind, so we just generally say, Lord, please forgive me for things I may have said, things that I said and I don't remember that I said. Lord, just cover the whole thing. But at the same time, don't let that be the... The, the, don't let that be the rule of life. Let the rule of life, Lord, protect me in your grace. Hold me and bridle my tongue. And we'll probably be way more quiet than I've ever been in my life. I'll probably say far less than I've ever said. Even the righteous man, even, a, even a, a fool is considered wise when he keeps his mouth quiet. You know, like the old saying that says, uh, better to somebody to think you a fool than to open your mouth and to remove all doubt. Here we are. We've got to deal with the facts. Oh, I'm better off just being quiet. Praise the Lord. So verses 5 and 6 here. Uh, so as we said, the covetous man is an idolater and, had, and does not have any part in the kingdom of Christ and of God. And let no man deceive you with vain words, for because of these things comes the wrath of God on the children of disobedience. I guess I read that and I think this is where this is where our, our prayers come in. Because sometimes when you read something in scripture, you have to back away and ask yourself, do I believe that that's true? And maybe I have all the security of and the assurance of my salvation. 
but I know a whole lot of other people who don't. I know a whole lot of other people who are not even close to God right now. And this is where it ends for them. This is where it ends for them. And I know people who are deceived and say, I'm a Christian, and I know God, and this is where it ends for them. And so we know that the, we know, we, I mean, it doesn't matter preceding that verse or, or after that verse, we know that Jesus has declared the gospel, but sometimes they stay right here. They never know. I've heard it, but I've never got it in my heart. I've never had a regenerating work of God's Spirit in me, and I know all about it. I remember in high school, kids said, I, I know the Bible. I know the Bible. And they were like, oh, the whole point was to defeat me and telling them, you can't live a sinful life. You can't live the way you're living. And it didn't matter what I said or did. It was like, you're judging us. You're judging us. I'm like, you don't realize. This is true for you. And in all of your ignorance, you have no clue as what it will be like to land that day in eternity when you thought you were a good person, when you thought your moral deeds and your good deeds would outweigh all the bad things you ever did in your life, and you may have been able to say, I was so impeccable that I knew Christians that weren't half as good as me. And one day you're going to land that, that standing in the judgment seat of Christ. And all the dreams and all the things that you had in mind are not going to come true. And God's goodness gave me a sense of that. You may, you may hate me. You may not love me. You may despise me. You may post everything on Facebook about me that's not true. But when it's all said and done, I'm going to be crying hot tears poured out over the altar. Lord, despite the fact that they're an enemy of God, despite the fact that everything in them, all we could recommend is they've got so many prejudices toward the cross. They've got so many prejudices toward Jesus that that's all they have to recommend the interest toward Jesus. That's all they have. And then we pray, Lord, they're blind. They can't see. The God of this world has blinded the minds of those who don't believe the light of the gospel will shine to them and their disobedience and their willful disobedience and they're going to keep acting out in that. And they say, where is the message of grace? It's when you surrender. And grace is there even before you surrender because God could cast you down right now and he doesn't because he loves you too much. And so we have to remember, for many, this is where it ends. This is the tragedy behind so many deaths. So this is why God's called us to pray and live a life that's otherwise so that we can continue to break open heaven for those who are needing of the Lord. Um, again, he named the, the covetousness. Let's go to verses 8, 9, and 10. I'm not going to finish this. We're going to talk about marriage next week. Lord permitting, but I just want to talk about this. 
For we were sometimes darkness, but now are we light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light, for the fullness of the Spirit is in all goodness and righteousness and truth, proving what is acceptable unto the Lord. So these verses highlight the contrasting nature of our conversion. It just contrasts what God had in mind. It shows us what His will is. So that every day we live our life endorsing, giving glory to God. And so He's showing in the nature of the Christian life, you see something completely different, something other than. And and He tells us, don't be partakers with Him, but don't stop there. You were sometimes darkness too. Remember where you came from. And now you're children, you're, you're children of the Lord and walk in, in the light. For the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness and righteousness and truth. Goodness and righteousness kind of come together, but we think of goodness every time. There's a lot of people you would look in your life and you'd say, I can see goodness in them. I see goodness. They're the person who would give anything for me. They're the person who... Uh, they'll set aside their own griefs and hardships and even more difficult than what I've gone through and they will still listen to me and pray with me and they won't even they won't even peep a word of what they're struggling through just so they can be there for me. Goodness. In verses 11 and 17, and I'd already uh, shared this verse 11 earlier, and we have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them. For it is a shame even to speak to those things which are done of them in secret. But all things that are reproved and made manifest by the light, that whatever does make manifest is light. Wherefore he says, Awake, you that sleep, and arise from the dead, and Christ shall give you light. See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time, because the days are evil. Wherefore, be also be not unwise, but understanding what the will of the Lord is. So we're redeeming the time by calling others out of darkness and into the light. In verses 19 through 20, speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things unto God and the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice he he basically just goes here in the last verse and he says, giving thanks to God in all things. You've avoided the covetousness, and you've stepped into the Spirit. You know, there's different ways of dividing, defining what it means to walk in the Spirit. There's different ways of defining that. Um, we could say, you know, you're in the Spirit because you're speaking in tongues. You're in the Spirit because you're shaking. You're in the Spirit because you fell over and... You're having an experience. And I won't say that there's not a lot of that's just perfectly within the right frame of saying they were in the Spirit and God did something physically to them that 
overwhelm them. But when you're getting scriptural definition of what it means to be in the Spirit, this is it. Like, this is it. Because what you can say is this is if nobody else had those expressions, but they had this, we would give we give a check mark and say that's definitely, we can see the Spirit of God in that. But we can say anybody who shows all those other expressions, but they don't have this, they're not thankful, they don't sing unto the Lord with praise, they don't give Him glory in all things, but they have all these other outward things going on in their life, something's missing. Something's missing desperately. And we want to be a well-balanced church. When we talk about being a spirit-filled church, we're talking about walking in the ways of God and having the gifts and things that follow with that. But we wouldn't want to be having the gifts and be divorced from the holiness and the purity of the life that it means to be in. So I believe the whole of Scripture is the, is the revelation that it's both in it. And... I love the fact that the scripture, when he goes in here, he talks about some of these things that are hard to deal with. But then he goes in and he replenishes the fact that when it comes to true worship, here's the fragrance, here's the joy, here's what it is that you want to live for. And not just how do you want to escape, but what do you want to do instead. And so thinking of just the simpleness of thankfulness, if I could highlight that this morning, I would say this, the simpleness of thankfulness some of the people who've been such a blessing in my life are those who are always thankful. They're incredibly thankful. And the ones that really, 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 really are a sweet, sweet blessing to me are those that when you'd, I guess you could say this, if I were dealing with what you were dealing with, or if I just went through the complication or the struggle that you did, I would not be half as thankful and I wouldn't be as praising him like, but you do. And you are such a blessing to me. You are such a blessing because you don't look at all the complications as a problem. You love God and you worship him in the complications. And the reason why you're such a blessing is is because I know your devotion is genuine. You are genuinely devoted to Jesus. Because it's not Jesus made me rich and I'm devoted to him because of the good circumstances of my life and I don't have any troubles and I don't have any storms. You love Jesus through and through. The circumstances never gauged your commitment and love to him. And every time you express that, every time you share that with somebody, what a blessing you are. A tremendous blessing. And not only that, but I want to say this. Remember the story of Caleb and Joshua and the 12 spies. And it said that Joshua and Caleb came back and they had a faithful report. But the 12 spies, they just basically stated the facts. And we kind of missed that. Like they weren't exaggerating anything. What they said was true. But they missed the point. That the facts don't find define who God is. 
And it doesn't define what God can do. And so I hear some people say, you know, I just don't accept that. If it's a fact, say it for what it is. But remind the fact who Jesus Christ is. Remind him that I have the Savior of the world who has created the laws of nature. He can suspend him if he wants to. He can do whatever he wants to do. He's that kind of God. And when we pray, that's what the Lord is pressing us in. He says, look at the facts. Look at the struggles. Now, call on me because I've got the answer for it. So when you give thankfulness in all seasons, you prove that you have a genuine worship for God because nothing changes that. And God gets the praise. And I think that's what, in part, what Jesus meant when he said that the Father seeks those to worship him in spirit and in truth. Because the truth is, the truth is, no matter what we're dealing with, God's got it. It's that simple. That's the truth. And when your spirit indulges itself in that as a reality, you know, let it unfold. Devil, unleash the fires of hell if you want to. Do what you do because it's going to be more of a shame to you when God does what he's going to do. I think that's what makes Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, their story so amazing to me. Is they said, our God is able to deliver us. And they told him, go ahead, heat the fire, light it up, and make it seven times hotter. Just get it as hot as you can. Make it red hot. Come on. Because God, when he's going to do this, isn't going to give you a shallow testimony. He's not going to let you begin to think in your mind that maybe there was some kind of chance thing to this. Maybe this was a byproduct of nature. Mother nature. Da-da-da-da-da-da. No, the reality is that God's going to make the circumstances so bleak or allow for the circumstances to be so bleak so dark, so depressing, so difficult, that when Jesus comes in and He does what He's going to do, that you're going to know one thing and one thing only, that only God could do that. You're going to know only God can make that happen. And that's going to be the breath of your faith. That's going to be the driving force behind the next time you get to God and pray. And you're going to say, Lord, I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid of the trials. I'm not afraid of the hardships. I'm not afraid of all the harassment of hell can bring on me because I know the power of Jesus Christ. You already proved it. And that's what I love about David's story. You're like, when are you going to quit? I just got started. I love about David's story. He looks at the giant and he's like, he goes to Saul and he says, "Um, I'm young. I don't have muscle. I'm not strong. I'm not brilliant. But I know one thing. I know that our God is able. And he, he basically says, I just want to give you a testimony. You know, I'll just give you a reason why you might want to recommend me before the rest of these guys. I have been out with tending my father's flock, and there came out a lion and a bear. And I took him by the beard, and I hit him. Bam! And I killed him. I'm not afraid of this giant, because God has already put a testimony within me. What is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And this is the kind of faith that right now is going to rock the world in this pandemic. Is that somehow we have to believe.
that the situations that are occurring are not an ultimate result of somebody had a rotten bat one day and caused a problem for us all. But the reality is that Jesus Christ wants to show Himself in the world in the most radical way that we've ever seen in this generation. And somehow we got to get to the place that we believe this Word. And God says what's impossible for man is possible with God. And maybe, just maybe, not only will we come out of a pandemic and see healing in this nation, but maybe we'll see a revival in our churches and among our brothers like never before and our sisters serving God in an incredible way. You didn't think I was going to be preaching about David and Goliath out of Ephesians, but I did. <laughs> Praise God. Lord, thank you for your message to us. Lord, I feel so encouraged right now, Lord. God, I'm thankful that, Lord, you're not saying to us, Lord, wield our own strengths, wield our own powers. Lord, we can, in our weaknesses, in our limitations, Lord, in the reality that I don't have enough. <laughs> I don't have anything. This giant is greater than me. But Lord, I have your word. I have the scripture and I have the promises of God daily. Lord, breathe the inspiration of those promises into us. Let us see that, Lord, there's no end to them, Father, that there isn't a finality to a promise that you have. It's an, uh, it's an infallible promise, a perfect promise. Lord, an omnipotent promise. And so, Lord Jesus, I thank you for what you're going to do. Lord, I thank you for this church. Lord, as we pray this week, Lord, move upon this community in unprecedented ways. Lord, touch hearts that have not been saved yet. Lord, we can say, and we've already heard it, Lord, this morning, there's been people in our lives that we can say we didn't think, we didn't know, we weren't sure if they were going to respond. Because in all human levels, they wouldn't respond. They wouldn't turn towards you. But in God levels, Lord, I don't care how hard the resistance is. Lord, how cold their hearts are. Lord, how prejudiced they are about the gospel. How many people have betrayed them in their life. What their hurts are. The reality is, Jesus, your love cures it all. And the blood of Jesus washes every stain of sin on our lives. And whatever our pain along with our sins, Lord, covers the debauchery and the difficulty of our lives. The reality is, the reality is, Jesus, you cure it all. And Lord, you make us few uh, new specimens of the grace and the love of Jesus. And Lord, I just thank you for my church, your church, today. Lord, we are an expression of that in this community. And we may not feel like we're strong enough. Lord, we might be the Gideons who said, Lord, who am I, me and my father's house? But the Lord says to us this morning, go in your strength, you mighty man of valor. So Lord, now we're going to conquer. We're going to move forward in this week, Jesus. You have something mighty. And we give you all the praise. Jesus, Jesus. Amen, Lord. Hallelujah. Amen. Brother says amen. <laughs>